economic democracy, I think, is an opportunity to figure out how do we take our democratic principles and values and apply it to an economic system that is supposed to also be in service of the people, rather than having a capitalist economy corrupt what our democracy is supposed to look like. And when we can start to kind of have democracy shape economy, when we can start to actually ensure that people are showing up as active daily stewards and governing their communities, I think that's some of what the opportunity is in, in the work that we do. Welcome to Economics for Emancipation, a podcast about how we can move towards justice by transforming our relationships to each other, to our environment, and to the systems and structures that make our world go round. Each episode in this series features two guests in conversation with each other about the daily struggles, strategic considerations, and huge opportunities that come with the work of building a better world for all of us, with justice as our North Star. I am your host, Amethyst Carey, and I'm here to learn and listen with you. I'll be sharing context, definitions, and some of my reflections on the key themes raised by our brilliant guests. Themes like shared governance and economic democracy. And if you don't know what these terms mean, you're in the right place. We're here to figure them out together. Here's a few ways you can engage with us while listening. If you like what you hear in this episode, please rate us five stars on whatever platform you're using to listen and leave a review. Let us know what you think on Instagram and Twitter by using the tag hashtag E4EPod and that is four like the number. If social media isn't for you or if you're just tired of it like me, you can share your thoughts by sending an email to podcast at economicdemocracy.us. And as always, all of this information and details about today's featured interviewees can be found in our show notes. Okay, let's get into it. In this episode, we hear from Amaka and Francisco, two CED fellows who are deeply insightful thinkers, educators, and practitioners in the racial and economic justice world. Amaka Agbo is based in Oakland, California, and has a background in organizing, electoral campaigns, and policy and advocacy on racial, social, and environmental justice issues. Through her consulting work and program leadership, she supports projects that build resilient, healthy, and self-determined communities rooted in shared prosperity. She has also served on the board of several racial and economic justice organizations, including Thousand Currents, Resource Generation, Restore Oakland, and the Schumacher Center for New Economics. Francisco Perez is a solidarity economy activist and has worked as an economic development professional with frontline communities in Senegal, Sierra Leone, Venezuela, and the Dominican Republic. Francisco is currently a PhD student in economics at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and director of the Center for Popular Economics. His research focuses on international political economy. Francisco is a CED fellow and a leader in the annual Popular Education Workshop our podcast is named after. Check out the show notes for more info on Economics for Emancipation, the workshop, where you can learn more about the origins of capitalism and resistance to it through a social justice lens. This episode was recorded in May of 2020, when the crisis of the pandemic met our most recent peak of racist, anti-Black violence in the form of murder at the hands of the police. I share this for context and as a heads up for Black people listening in. Francisco and Amaka do a really beautiful job of honoring each other's humanity in the wake of this violence, while connecting this moment in time to the longer historical and economic patterns of Black life and value being disregarded. 
While the intensity of the uprisings has lessened in many cities, our struggle towards liberation clearly has not. Amaka and Francisco then move on to discuss challenges and opportunities when it comes to communicating about capitalism, economic democracy, and other concepts that often feel too abstract to fully understand. And finally, they wrap with a really dope dialogue about how we can incorporate wisdom from our ancestors and other cultures based in solidarity as we move towards a better future. Hey, Francisco. Hi, Maka. How are you? I'm okay. I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. Um, yeah, yourself? Uh, juggling with a lot and then, you know, also... Um, trying to deal with the world outside, right? So we have a pandemic and then yet another series of murders of, of innocent black people, which, you know, it, it's, it takes its toll on the soul, right? You know, it, it happens all the time and yet it, it's, it's a shock every single time. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I think um, for us to kind of be recording a conversation around economy in the midst of a national rebellion and a response to anti-blackness and police brutality is, um, unfortunately, there's a lot of connections there when we think about um, the way that our country has kind of built its legacy, built its wealth upon black bodies um, and the way that we've kind of militarized a government to defend that wealth. I don't think we're meant to get used to this type of violence, this type of grief, this type of loss. Um, and if anything, I see the protests and the rebellions as a commitment to our own humanity, um, a commitment to our own right to live dignified livelihoods. I think... You know, in the context of this conversation, I saw a quote recently from Charlene Carruthers, um, the founder of BYP 100. And to kind of paraphrase her quote, she was talking about how the protest and the, the rioting in response to um, the death of George Floyd and the way that people have come out in defense of kind of the property, right? The targets, the corporations, um, and really lifting up this damning connection between the fact that not too long ago, enslaved people were considered as property, right? So when we also kind of talk about what's happening in terms of what we choose to defend and how we choose to defend it and how black lives aren't considered as worthy or, but once we're considered as property, but we don't actually see their humanity in this moment is um, really hard um, to stomach. It's really sobering. So yeah, we're having this conversation in a hard context with that going on in the global pandemic and even more so why I'm really excited to just kind of chat with you and spend some time um, unpacking how do we think about our current economy? How do we think about transforming it? How do we actually break down this word in this system to make it um, accessible and understandable to those that are really trying to grapple with how they think about that in this moment? Yeah, I mean, it is, um, it's an important question, right? I feel like um, movement generation and other folks love to remind us that it's management of home. Although I think it's better to explain it as management of time. Right, it's how we choose to spend our time. If you say work, people immediately start jumping to paid work, uh, and we realize that there's a lot of unpaid work that we all have to do. Right, and and this is one of the things that this pandemic has laid bare is like what is truly essential work in our society. Right, we don't necessarily need hedge fund managers, but we do need farmers. We do need childcare workers. We do need you know, it, it really kind of lays bare what 
what is truly necessary work. So I, I would say it's the work that we do, right? It's how we choose to organize our time. It's how we choose to organize, which means, you know, kind of economics 101 often starts with this consumption leisure trade-off, right? So the first decision that the benevolent uh, social planner has to make is how much time to spend working and how much time to spend not working, right? And I think there's a lot wrong with that paradigm. I mean, assuming the economy is one person, you know, uh, assumes away all the issues of a distribution, who has and who doesn't. But I do think it, it, it actually is useful to think about just you wake up in the morning, how are you going to spend your day, right? And for most of us, that means going to work in order to get the money that we need to pay for food, to sh for shelter, for healthcare, um, to take care of our families, right? It's time use. And then from there, the flows of resources, right? So who works for how much, where, and what do they do with it? But I think at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're talking about people's work and people's time. Yeah. What I appreciate about what you lifted up is like the, the essential element of choice, right? The ability to have choice and be able to exercise it. And for me, one of the ways I kind of unpack the economy, meaning the management of home piece is what does it mean to actually be able to live a life with dignity? And so when I personally think about the management of home, like I'm no longer thinking about GDP, dollars and cents, import taxes. I'm actually thinking about my family. I'm thinking about our Nigerian cultures and traditions. I'm thinking about what it means to blend those culture and tradition with my partner who's Japanese. And, you know, a lot of what, when I think about managing my home, it's, it like you said, right, it's less about the pay to work and more about the livelihood that I get to live and the quality of that livelihood, but so much uh, around what is what is critical to even be able to make that happen is the ability to have choice, right? And choice comes down to what are the inputs, right? What are the things that you're able to bring into your home, into your quality of life that you're then able to make something out of it? And so I think this is where we also start to see some of the pieces around economy, looking at the distribution of resources start to blend and integrate with government, right? The question of the who, who is making yeah. those decisions is starting to really then shape the flow of those goods and services. Yes. So there's a few things you've said that I wanted to pick up on. You know, one, I think part of what we're talking about is there's there's small, narrow definitions of economy and governance, right? Economy being kind of the formal economy or like the stock market, the stuff that you see, numbers, stuff that's usually reported in the business press, and then a much more expansive view of the economy as how we organize our time, how we determine who gets what, right? Like who has and who doesn't, right? Which is why to me, like economy is everything, um, the same way that governance can kind of be reduced to what's the best kind of property tax system, right? These sort of technocratic delusions, I would I would call them, right? Like the idea that there's somehow one hack or trick that would make this stuff work where it's like, no, really, it's a political struggle. It's a, governance is about who sets the rules and norms, right? And the two are obviously linked. Who sets the rules and norms are probably going to be the people who have the stuff. And the people who don't set the rules and norms are probably going to be the people who don't have the stuff. Yeah. And for me, I think it's really helpful to kind of unpack governance and government because I think we far too often conflate the two. And there's a way that we conflate the two where we actually give up our power, right? We assume that government is the only thing, the only entity that can... Um, can enact certain policies to bring about justice, equity, to like transform systems. And, and, and so for me, I tried to think of governance as something that is active. Governance is something that is a process that requires us to be showing up and being active daily stewards of our communities. And, and so much of how we're taught, right? If we, you know, kind of going back to 
you know, our, our high school government, uh, government classes, so much of what we're taught about governance is about turning out to vote. Governance is beyond voting in elections. Governance is rooted in our relationships and our, our way of being with each other and coming together um, to, to actively take care of one another. And we do actually have places of agency, um, and there are ways that we can start to really reshape um, governance um, for something that actually directly serves us. Um, in addition to, we, I always believe that we, you know, we should engage in electoral politics. And I did that work for a number of years and, um, and still get engaged um, in elections. Um, and I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we kind of relinquish all of the power to government actors and assume that they will do things that are in accordance and support of communities when we know that they won't. And I feel like when it comes to governance, so I, I similar to how people would define the concept of hegemony, which in layman's terms just means common sense, right? So it's the idea that there's more to kind of the way we're socialized, the way we, to our society than just the government, right? We also learn society's rules um, through schools, through, you know, youth groups, right? So it's not simply the government tells us what to do. Like other, there's all kinds of other institutions, the family and said the church that also inform what we think of as common sense. And, you know, if, for example, it's common sense in our society that I can own your home and that if you don't pay me, I can kick you out, mm-hmm. right? In lots of other societies, that is not common sense or wasn't for a very, very long time, right? But in our society, it's perfectly acceptable to say, hey, this person didn't pay my rent, therefore I kicked them out. No, I mean, I think, I think that example like really sums it up. There's assumptions that are baked into how how we engage as a society, right? There's an assumption that capitalism is just the system that we have to continue to engage because it's what it has always been and what it will always will be. And the ability for folks to actually visibilize and understand how it's actual people and actors that are controlling that system, that are making it to function in a particular way that privileges some and hurts others, I think is is important. And even as we kind of talk about economy, oftentimes it's assumed that we're talking about capitalism specifically. And so given um, the work that you do facilitating and training people and educating them around economy and capitalism, what have you found to be some of the most effective tools and ways for folks to understand these systems and how to engage and confront them? It's a big question. I feel like, one, that people know and understand capitalism. What they don't know and understand is that it, there could be something else, right? We tend to naturalize what is and assume that whatever it is now is all there could be and all there always has been. And we know that both of those things aren't true. We know that capitalism has not existed forever and won't exist forever. But what people have a hard time seeing is there's something else, right? Because once you can see something else, we all have that feeling, right? Like I, I often do workshops on alienation, right? And that's another one of those big words that people are like, what are you talking about? And I just ask like, have you ever been bored at work? Yep. Or have you ever felt like, do you ever feel like you want to be lazy at work, right? And it's like, why? Where, where does that feeling come from, right? So, you know, what I find in terms of tools is these kinds of questions help, right? These kinds of questions that just help people identify that feeling, put a name to it, And then really we try to make things that are one, like based on people's lives that that speak to their experiences. Cause I feel like we know, we all know the economy, right? We all work, we all pay bills, uh, we all buy and sell things. And then the other thing is we we try to illustrate these things in, in a sort of show not tell way, right? So one of the tactics I try to use a lot 
maybe even too much is we use a lot of theater and role plays, right? So for example, we talk about monetary and fiscal policy by having people play the different actors in this sort of drama, right? So we have a group of workers, we have a group of capitalists, we have commercial banks, uh, and we'll often name them. So it'll be Bank of America or Washington Mutual. We have the U.S. Treasury and Congress, and then we have the Federal Reserve, right? And we'll have people impersonate them, right? And get up. And so you can see who is doing what. And that helps people at least somewhat to understand what the connections are. Because otherwise, you know, if you give people an, an article and just say, you know, what, what is this new emergency lending facility the Fed has created? People are lost. They're like, what the hell's a facility? What's, what's emergency? What's the Fed? But like, if we do a game where you are a character and, and you see people literally handing out money and then distributing money and goods, that helps a lot. Wow, 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 wow. There was so much good stuff in this first bit. I want to lift up Francisco's note about economy being management of time and how Amaka seamlessly layers in the concept of choice into that definition. How do we as people get to spend our time or have to spend our time in order to survive in this world? And who gets to have choice or agency and dignity in the way that time is spent? That's a framework for understanding the economy that I think many more people can see themselves in. And it makes it clear to me why the economic sphere is such an important place to intervene if we want to improve the quality of life of everyday people. I also really appreciated Amaka's point about governance being an active practice, which we'll revisit later on in this episode. In this next segment, Amaka and Francisco share their take on economic democracy and discuss where democracy does and doesn't show up in their daily lives. economic democracy, I think, is an opportunity to figure out how do we take our democratic principles and values and apply it to an economic system that is supposed to also be in service of the people, rather than having a capitalist economy corrupt what our democracy is supposed to look like. And when we can start to kind of have democracy shape economy, when we can start to actually ensure that people are showing up as active daily stewards and governing their communities, I think that's some of what the opportunity is in in the work that we do. And so um, figuring out how we talk about economic democracy and make it more accessible is part of what we're tasked with. And, and so I'm kind of curious, how do you how do you kind of communicate economic democracy and um, so that it can be accessible and understandable to people um, out there in the world doing the work? I've been defining economic democracy as being able to control and own our workplaces, our housing and land, our money and investments, and our governments. I've gotten into discussions with people about being like, no, like there's some stuff that is missing, but I feel like those core four areas and sets of institutions, right? If you think about what does it mean to own our workplace? It means some kind of self-management, cooperative system, right? Where the people who do the work have a say in how it gets done. What does it mean to own our land and housing? It means some kind of limited equity co-op or housing co-op or community land trust, right? Where the people who live there have a say in how their property is managed and run and they own it, right? No one's going to kick them out. What does it mean to own our, our money? This is one of the things that um, Ujima has taught me a lot about, which is we could raise our own savings and determine where they go, right? Like banks have loan officers. Why can't we be the loan officer? Why can't we determine who gets a loan and on what terms, 
right? And then government, we, we have representative government, which is better than like living in a feudal society or, or a dictatorship, true, true. but still not the kind of deep democracy, right? Not the kind of really participatory democracy that we really want to see where, again, most people, democracy is I go and I vote. If I do vote, if I even bother voting every four years. Your vote out. isn't suppressed. Right. If they even let you vote. So like assuming that you have, a, that you can vote and your vote counts, um, you show up, you know, you, you, you check off a few things, you fill in a few bubbles and then you go home and you wait another four years, right? And if you're politically engaged, you might read the newspaper. And I feel like that's just not gonna cut it. Also, like, what does it actually mean to like truly own your government? Because you see it now, the people who burnt down the third precinct in Minneapolis do not feel like they own the Minneapolis city government or have any control over the police department. Mm -hmm. If they did, there's no way they would have burnt it down, right? That to me is, is clear as day evidence that people don't feel like they own their governments. I've been workshopping that kind of framing and, and would love your thoughts and, and others to see kind of, because it is a very abstract idea. Yeah, and I completely um, agree with you with those four categories, and there may be others. And what I appreciate about the way that you laid out these four areas of where people need to own and govern and have say is that what we're starting to see is that those are the same areas that are being visibilized as essential in this global pandemic moment, right? People are starting to really recognize, oh, I actually need to have say and control over my shelter. I need to have say and control over my workplace and what the safety protocols are there. I need to have say and control over how money um, is moving throughout my community and particularly what it means to quote unquote, reopen the economy. Yeah, I mean, it is, there's usually a few questions that I feel like also help. You know, I ask people, do you vote for your boss? And people are like, what? No. And you're like, yeah, you, you're supposed to vote for your leadership in a democracy. So what, what does that mean about your workplace? Mm -hmm. That it's not democratic. You know, do you vote for your landlord? It's like, no. You know, and, and I'm fortunate that I, I did grow up in a, in a limited equity co-op. Uh, and it took me a long time to realize what that even meant and why that was special. But, you know, I grew up in New York City and our neighborhood gentrified quite dramatically. At this point, we've probably gone through like three ways of gentrification. But we've been able to stay because we own our building. We, we got it through squatters' rights. Um, we pay a maintenance fee. And it shows you how much profit these landlords are making because, you know, my mom lives in a three-bedroom apartment. Her maintenance fee is about $700. That's what it costs to maintain the building, to pay the water, to pay the taxes, to pay for the heating oil. Everything else above that, right? Our neighbors are paying three, four, even $5,000 for equivalent apartments just down the street. So obviously their landlord is not spending $4,000 maintaining their property, but we also didn't practice democracy, right? So we had an elected board, but people still thought of themselves as tenants and still thought of themselves as paying rent. And we had one person in place who basically ran the building quite corruptly, um, was able to give affordable apartments to their family and friends because we didn't practice, right? So it shows you that like even having the kind of perfect organizational form while way better than having a shitty organizational form because we have permanently affordable housing in one of the nicest parts of, of Manhattan, it isn't enough, right? Just to have a democracy on paper isn't enough. Yeah. People have to actually breathe life into it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the next challenge for us. No, I mean, I think that example like really sums it up. Like I don't presume that governance is easy, 
right? It actually requires you to show up and struggle. And part of why I think projects like Boston New Dream and others are really important is because they allow folks to not only be in the critique around systems and culture and institutions, but it also requires people to engage in interpersonal conversations. It requires them to show up as individuals. And there's something about really recognizing that transformation needs to happen, not only on the political institutional level, but also on the individual level. And that's why being able to engage in a project of governance is essential for folks to understand, well, what does it actually take for us to change systems and do things differently? A lesson that shows up here in this episode so clearly and throughout the series is everything becomes more real in practice. Again, this theme of being hands-on, leading to a greater understanding and personal transformation is present in Amaka's point about being involved in a project of governance. I also love the way Francisco prompted these questions about the lack of democracy in our everyday lives. Specifically, the lack of democracy in the areas of our lives that play an essential role in determining our ability to thrive. Work, shelter, money and investments, and our government. So listeners, I'm curious, how has the pandemic affected your sense of your own power? As a family member, as a worker, as a neighbor, and as a human being? Where do you experience democracy or not? Let us know at podcast at economicdemocracy.us. In our next segment, Amaka shares some background on her approach to racial and economic justice and why she describes her work as restorative economics. She touches on why we need multiple strategies to engage as many people as possible in change-making and how she sees economic democracy fitting into the many frameworks for changing our economy and society for the better. provide some context around my work on restorative economics and how I got to use that terminology. I come from a social racial justice organizing background. And one of the things that I observed when I started to kind of pull the thread on economy and money and capital and how it moves through some of my economic justice work was kind of, you know, coming into contact with the new economy movement. That's really, I would say that there's particular language and particular um, movement that's happened in the New England area of the United States around that frame. And what I started to observe being in those spaces is that those spaces, um, unfortunately, while we were kind of talking about economic justice, it was the people that continued to have kind of the leisure time, the flexible capital and the risk tolerance that were shaping those conversations that were benefiting off of this frame around new economy, shareable economy. And I found those spaces to continue to have sexist and racist undertones. And so as a black woman, it was really clear to me that this didn't actually feel like a movement or a space where I felt seen um, and respected and heard. And we were also starting to engage in a conversation around creating a more equitable economy that was replicating a lot of the same systems of hurt and harm that so many of us have been organizing against um, in some of our other social justice spaces. And so for me, restorative economics puts a very specific racial justice lens on the work around creating a more equitable economy. And I don't think that we can presume to not talk about race when we're talking about economy, given the history of our country, right? Given the history of enslaved bodies being the thing that 
has kind of created the United States as the imperial superpower that it is, given the genocide and stolen land from indigenous communities. And so what we're seeing, particularly in this moment, the global pandemic, right, and even the uprisings across the country, is that Black and brown people continue to be those that are hurt the hardest disproportionately in moments of ruptures like these. And that's because we have such a deep divided racial wealth divide in this country. And so until we actually start to repair the harm and not just harm in terms of the painful trauma that's levied on these communities, but quite frankly, the economic harm that prevents these communities from being able to enact any type of dignity and self-determination in their communities, right? Until we actually repair that, we won't get to something that's more just and equitable because we will continue to leave these communities locked out and left behind. The fact that we see Black people disproportionately dying from COVID-19 is because we have a legacy of ensuring that Black people aren't seen as dignified and worthy of quality health care. And so restorative economics for me is, is really an opportunity to put our work in a historical cultural context of what we're trying to create more equitably going forward. And that I think we need to continue to kind of come back to who should we be investing in, right? Black and brown and indigenous communities. How should we be investing in them? Um, ensuring that we're providing non-extractive capital, ensuring that we're providing the financial, non-financial resources that they need. And then what are we investing in? Being able to invest in projects like Boston Ujima, being able to invest in projects like the historic Claiborne Temple and so many others across the country, where we're starting to see people that are enacting models that are really focused on creating shared prosperity, community wealth, as opposed to something that continues to prop up um, individual riches. And, you know, this other piece around how does restorative economics kind of prop up against some of the other frames around new economy and, and economic democracy, I actually do see them as distinct. I have always envisioned economic democracy as kind of the, the light, the horizon that we're walking towards. Um, I'm not totally sure what um, that final structure or system looks like, but I see restorative economics as the pathway towards getting there. And I think that our ability to have a movement where we are allowing people, regardless of the terminology, whether it's solidarity economy, economic democracy, restorative economics, just transition, there's a, there's many of them that were clear that there are shared values and principles and mechanisms that we're trying to uphold and lift. I think we can tend to get in a, a place as a movement where, where we want to say that there is only one right way to do things. And I think our ability to actually hold space for a number of different strategies, because you need to innovate and iterate. And um, and that is where a lot of the resilience happens when we're playing with a number of different experiments, rather than getting into the infighting where we say there can only be one. Because what works in Boston is going to be very different than what works in Oakland, right? We have a history and legacy of, of the Black Panthers. And so really calling into that work around self-determination and, and racial justice and, and, and dignity is what resonates for this community here in the Bay Area, which is distinct than the history of Boston and what has really emerged over there. And so how do we create a movement that allows people in particular places under unique conditions to define themselves and their work, knowing that our larger overarching values and principles are aligned in the same? And so... Yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now.
No, you can keep preaching. No, I mean, I am curious to hear more because part of what I'm looking for, I think what we're all looking for is what frame actually resonates with our communities. Because one of the things that I find is, you know, I speak to lots of different groups. And when I speak to upper middle class white groups or even like undergraduates at the University of Massachusetts where I, where I teach, I have to convince them that the system is wrong, right? The system is failing which I think it might be different now after COVID, right? I'm very curious to get back in the classroom and see if people are gonna make the same arguments defending global capitalism that they were making three months ago. When I go into working class communities, especially working class communities of color, I don't have to convince them that shit is not working. What I have to convince them is that there is an alternative, that things could be better, right? That there is something out there that could potentially work. Do you feel like, restorative economics as a frame can do that? Or is there, how else do you have this conversation? How else do you get people out of the kind of cynicism and fatalism of, well, there's just no other way that, you know, this shit is fucked up and that's just the way it's going to be? Yeah, that's also a good question, Francisco. I think, I think people are really hurting and it's hard to continue to fight in, in when you're confronting a state, a system that continues to deny your humanity. And so it is, it is really hard. And I think even the conversation that we're having around some of these terms, I don't, I don't presume to engage um, the communities that I work with, with these terms. What I have found to be the thing that moves people is the ability to actually create space to bring them together to work on a specific project together, right? Because sometimes the the systems, the outside systems can be so so large and so overwhelming that it can almost immobilize somebody from taking action. Um, and I think what we've also seen, you know, as, uh, you know, as those of us that are students of histories is that People, when they come together, can the people can win um, and self-organize to really figure out, well, how can they go a little bit farther? What's possible? And, and one of the things that I really enjoy about the work that I get to do is I get to support people in thinking through the technical aspects of their project, right? Sometimes people can get into a place where there's just or feeling like there's no capital, like they can't access the capital to actually acquire the building, or they can't find the values aligned um, legal assistance to figure out how to structure their limited equity cooperative or, or whatever it may be. And so really inviting community to hold their vision and then help them think through how how to apply their vision into the technical aspects of their projects. And that has been um, some of the breakthroughs that um, that I've seen um, in terms of what it means for everyday working class people to to be able to engage in some of this work. Um, but then the other thing that that always just kind of sits with me is that when you're struggling to to pay your rent, when you're struggling to to put food on the table to get dignified work, it's really hard to engage in movement. It's really hard to to figure out how you carve out some time to go gather signatures. And so I think that we also need to hold a level of grace and patience for those people that are trying to figure out, well, how do I get my day-to-day -day needs met so that I can actually continue on in the fight? And so just like I hope our movements can hold multiple strategies, I hope that we can also hold people that are at different stages of their evolution and different capacities to participate in this work and participate in the fight because 
Sometimes just the ability to continue to live day after day in spite of people telling you that you are not worthy, that is that is a rebellion unto itself. And so um, I also try to kind of keep that perspective at heart when organizing and working with folks on the ground. One of the questions that comes up often when when I talk to people about economic democracy, especially among people of color and, and immigrants is, this sounds like what my people have been doing for eons. How is this any different from what, you know, the folks in my village or in my community did until the European colonialists arrived? Yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate you asking this question and I'll take it back to as another reason why I've kind of decided to engage with my work um, through the frame of restorative economics. It's because it requires us to acknowledge other cultures and other traditions. And so when we think about rooting our desire or our move towards economic democracy through a lens of reparations, through a lens of re-indigenizing, it really requires us to to kind of move away from this notion of Western imperialism where we're always creating something new, where we're always innovating and it's like the next big thing, and rather being able to recognize and honor the wisdom and culture of other traditions that we are now calling forth in this new context. Um, and so for me, this this question around like, isn't this the thing that we've always been doing before feels really important to lift up because I think not only do we have an opportunity to learn from um, past cultures and traditions, but we have an opportunity to then imply them with um, a deeper analysis and more context around the systems that are designed to hurt and harm us. And so one of the one of the systems I really look towards is my parents, um, I'm Nigerian, my parents um, are from Enugu State, and on my dad's side of the family, actually my both sides of the family, we have a, a patriarchal land stewardship model. And so um, in my dad's village, you know, everybody next door, down the pathway, um, across the way from us are relatives, cousins, distant descendants from long ago. And so we have a process of passing down land to the sons within the family. Um, And it's not sold, um, but anytime somebody passes or is kind of ready to move on their land, or when somebody kind of quote unquote comes of age, the clan, the family emoja, the clan will come together um, and decide who gets what parcel of land and how they get it. And it's through a collective decision-making process. And um, I think one of the places in which I've kind of struggled with that land stewardship model is that while it's not engaging in land in a speculative way, it is not actually inviting women to that conversation and women to also kind of have direct control over over the land. And so, for example, um, I'm really fortunate. My brother, he's really clear um, that I'm older than him. And for him, he feels that like if anybody should kind of be, quote unquote, in line to potentially get land through this process, that I would be next in line. But because of the way the systems are set up, um, it would technically go to him as the first son. And so what has been really beautiful is being able to kind of engage my dad in this process of of really recognizing um, how while we don't want to uphold those patriarchal systems, um, that we do want to continue to do land 
stewardship. So me and my brother have kind of taken a process where him and I, we engage in things together collaboratively. We make decisions about how we kind of move money to our family's umoja, to our family's clan for the ongoing management of our collective land together. Um, we have come to an agreement that if we, either one of us were to get land, most likely him, that it would be land knowing that um, it would be for the benefit of all of our siblings and not just him. And so those are the ways that we're starting to try to both honor and learn from the systems of how people have shared land in the past, but also not to continue to replicate systems of patriarchy and, and sexism. And I would say that like so many of um, West African culture and tradition is set up around really supporting the collective. So we even have a system of susus. Some of my dear sisters, Rufaro and Yasin, that live in the Bay Area with me, we came together um, and started to use the susu model to create a group um, we call Thrive Africa. And so each of us contribute on a monthly basis um, to a pot of money. And at the end of the year, we decide which African immigrant-based supporting organization we give the money to. Typically, susus um, are used so that everybody contributes and then once a month or every period of time, one person within the SUSU actually gets the money, but we've decided to really use it as a mechanism to support other African immigrants um, in the United States. And so, so those are some of the ways that I'm seeing people take their cultures and their traditions and kind of apply it um, to how we actually addressed a lot of the economic inequality, particularly um, in the United States. And I think that there's just so much more to learn from. I'm always very fascinated in, in you know, studying the Islamic tradition and principles around how money is used, right? And how you commit to giving and how you don't charge people interest and, and what that means when we talk about non-extractive finance. So I think we are so well situated to learn from so many of the things in the past that we actually haven't had access and information to before. And so that's an interesting place to just kind of study um, and sit with. Actually, as you were speaking, I was writing some things down because it's not perfect, but I often tell people what we're trying to do is remix those indigenous, those communal societies for the 21st century, which means more technology at a, at a bigger scale within, in a global economy, minus the hierarchies where these are not perfect societies, right? There are often serious gender and other um, forms of hierarchy and, and inequality within these places. Um, because there's usually differences of caste or lineage. Um, and then you would see, right, when they would get together and they, you know, and like you said, and it was, it was amazing to watch the communal land ownership process work itself out where like, you know, if, if someone had left the village to go work at a city, they would reapportion their land to someone who, you know, anyone who was a member, who was a male member of the village could get land. Although of course, women also farm in these communities, right? But so, but you would get land through your husband or father or brother, right? Some other man would have to kind of claim that land for you, even though for all intents and purposes, it was your land, you're the one working it. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of what, in what you said that, that, that resonates. Um, just as we are picking and choosing from this sort of Western capitalist legacy, we also go through the similar sorting process with our indigenous traditions of like, hey, we, I really like this communal land ownership part. I really like the village democracy part. This part about the older men get to say, you know, are the only ones who get to speak, not such a big fan of, right? We can, we can cut that part out. Yeah. And the last thing I'll offer is that on this piece, one of the things that people can be challenged by in this work is 
when we call for economic democracy, while we're still like defining the hard elements of it, we have a sense of the outline of it. But oftentimes it can be hard for people to walk towards that horizon when we actually don't know when it ends or what is at the end once we get there. And I'm, I'm reminded of the way that enslaved people would be able to chart a path to freedom in the North, even though they didn't necessarily know what they were encountering every step of the way. And the ability to stay, to be stayed on their eyes on freedom, right? And the ability to figure out how to share that information with each other through ways that weren't necessarily writing a map down, but ways that were literally looking at the stars, ways that were literally like, being able to look at trees and rivers and to communicate how we get to freedom. And so I think our ability to conjure up as much of that will and that radical imagination that so many folks before us have used is as part of what we get to lean into as we try to kind of move forward. I don't know about y'all, but the radical imagination to carry us through to a brighter future is really deeply what I needed to hear. In this year of upheaval, I've experienced these long spells of hopelessness and anger that I haven't felt in a long time. Since Tamir Rice was killed and I was marching in Cleveland and doing a lot of crying in my college dorm room. What got me out of that particular dark hole was a class about Marxism and the Black radical tradition. Shout out to Dr. Charles Peterson. Learning that I could live into the values and ways of being in the world that I wanted to create right now, and that I had a long, long lineage of Black people I could learn from who had been doing the same. Dreaming of a better world, trying things out, failing and learning and continuing to move forward, it's what I needed to keep my hopes up. To stay present and keep going with my eyes and heart towards freedom. This last bit of Amaka and Francisco's conversation reminded me of that. Despite Western imperialism's claim that we're always making something new, I find a lot of solace and reassurance in the fact that so many of the core values and practices that are within solidarity economy, economic democracy, regenerative economy, whatever we're choosing to call it, they're values that have been practiced in our communities across the diaspora for years and years. I hope y'all who are listening in walk away from this episode with a similar sense of inspiration. Where is democracy present in your life and where do you want it to be? What local governance projects can you get involved with to practice? And where can you look in your own lineage and cultures to seek inspiration? I'd love to hear your answers via email or by using hashtag E4EPod on social media. Economics for Emancipation is a project of the Center for Economic Democracy. This podcast is hosted by me, Amethyst Carey, and produced and edited by Libby Cohn with support from Liren Ma. Our sound is mixed by Michael Garth. This podcast features music from Masterpiece, who you can find linked in our show notes. The guests in this series are board members or fellows at the Center for Economic Democracy. To learn more about our work, visit us at www. .economicdemocracy.us And to tune into conversation about this podcast, hop on Twitter or Instagram with the tag 
hashtag E4EPod, and that is four like the number four.